0: The recovery at home, so appreciate your prayers. But tonight we're going to look at the book of Esther. So if you want to make your way there, we'll we'll begin in verse one. So let's go before the Lord and pray. Father, we just uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your love and for all that you continue to do through our lives. And uh, Lord, we also thank you for your Word, which you have preserved uh, for us with us in mind. And as we Look into your word tonight, Father, we ask that you would just move through our hearts and through our midst by your Spirit, Father, that we might, again, see you clearly and just fall in love uh, more with our Savior, Jesus, and Lord, just, um, again, uh, reveal all the things that you want to speak to us tonight, Father, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, Esther chapter one, and as we usually do before we start, when we, we start a new book, we go through uh, just a little background information on it and look, you know, where everything is, what uh, period it is, because remember the books of, of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all take place, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, the scholars refer to as post-exilic. So, After they've been in exile, they've come back to the land um, and God's establishing them there. And so all these events take place during that time. So you have uh, those three books and then you have uh, uh, Malachi and Zechariah who are also prophesying. So total of about five books written uh, in that period of time. And then we have about a four-year period. Four, I'm sorry four years, 400 years of silence before we roll around to what we read in Luke chapter 1 uh, called the inner Testament period and so uh, you know the Lord chooses not to uh, record anything in that period of time now the Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha and the Jewish uh, Jews have some other books there but again you um, you know, as far as the canon of Scripture, um, you know, again, most scholars and uh, evangelical, uh, you know, Bible teachers and Christians, you know, just pretty much discount those other things to just uh, more like history and not uh, actually the Word of God, which is why they're not included in our in our Bibles. Uh, but, you know, again, they have some interesting things and some interesting stories, but uh again not not the Word of God and so really Nehemiah if you want to take it in chronological order or as an order as it goes through the years Nehemiah would actually be the last book uh, in the Old Testament as far as time period wise and then you would jump into Luke chapter 1 so um, you know we've come to the end of the history of the Old Testament uh, even though we're going to go back through and and review the prophets and talk about it again. Because remember, the, the the Bible is kind of broken down into sections where you have the, the law, the first five books, and then you have the books of history, and then you have the books of, of, of poetry or songs, and, and then you have the prophets. And so it's not in, in written in chronological order. Although you can get a chronological Bible uh, and see it actually flow through time but that's not the way our Bibles are put together and really the New Testament is done very similarly uh, following a, a flow of groups of things rather than then going through you know from beginning to end as far as time although Revelation certainly fits there and so does Genesis fit in the beginning but that's how it's kind of broken down, and so uh, this person, the the book, the book of Esther, actually is referring to uh, to a person, and uh, she lived during the period of King Artaxerxes. He's also identified as Ajahari, um Asherius, uh, which is kind of like uh, it's a Persian name for ruler, uh, like Pharaoh is the uh, title of uh, e, uh, of the Egyptian king, uh, or even Caesar began, uh, you know, at at some point became known as the ruler of of Rome, of the Roman Empire, so it'd be Caesar this person, Caesar that person, so in that same kind of way when you see Asherius, it just refers to as a Persian ruler, but his name is Artaxerxes, and we've talked about him and his dad, and we'll, you know, his grandson as well as we go through this, but Again, her story took place after Ezra came back to Jerusalem as temple reforms, but before Nehemiah came back to to rebuild the walls. So we finished with Nehemiah, but the events, uh, as far as time wise, happened. Uh, uh, this book, the, the events in this book, happened before Nehemiah went back to the land and rebuilt the walls, and if. To really be more exact as far as the time wise, the, the events recorded in the book of Esther take place between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. So if you like to take notes in your Bible and keep track of things like that, you can put a, a footnote uh, right after the end of chapter 6 in Ezra or right at the beginning of chapter 7 of Ezra, and then you can write, you know, in your margin or whatever you like to do, you could put Esther in there, and that's where Esther takes place in between those two chapters. And so, uh, again, we, we have dates on these things because we know when Harius was ruler, so about, you know, 486 to 465 B.C. or so, um, and the events in this, because we'll see in verse 3, it'd be the third year of his reign, so about 483 B.C., now, I'll put some charts up here so you can see them, um, uh, just so you kind of know which direction we're going here. And we've shown these before, but you can see um, this time period of, of restoration of the post-exilic period. You have the ruler uh, Cyrus, which commanded the temple, uh, or allowed the Jews to go back into the land, and then Darius allowed the temple to rebuild. Actually, he let Cyrus let Zerubbabel come back to rebuild, and. The city and the temple, but it actually got completed under Darius. And then you can see up at the top in the boxes, Artaxerxes, and that takes place in the book of Esther. And then Artaxerxes, who are his son, uh, will, where Nehemiah takes place, and he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. And so, you know, he Nehemiah was in close contact with Artaxerxes. So you have Darius, his son Xerxes, and then Xerxes' son, or Darius' grandson Artaxerxes, and then you can see again some of the governors of uh, of the land, uh, the land of Israel. Zerubbabel is allowed to be governor um, by edict of Cyrus, and then there's some other governors in between there, and then eventually uh, Nehemiah will be governor there for a number of years, and you can see where Esther or Ezra the you know, where he came back and, you know, his date there at the very bottom of that chart. So just give you a little sense where it is. Here's another chart that maybe helps you get it a little bit uh, more. So you have chapters 1 and 2 and 3 through 6 of of Ezra. And then you have Esther in between there, all the periods of time. And then 7 through 10 of Ezra um, follows the book of Ezra. And so, again... You can kind of see how that kind of plays out there in between um, and where it kind of falls in the timeline between uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. There are some couple interesting facts of the book of Esther that I just want to point out. Um, The law is never mentioned in the book, nor are sacrifices or offerings that are referred referred to in the law. They're, 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 the law is not mentioned, sacrifices, offerings, none of those things are mentioned at all in the book of, of Esther, and which is kind of fitting in one sense if you think about it, because the Jewish people are residing in the Persian Empire, once was the Babylonian Empire, now they're the Persian Empire, um, you know, they weren't following God. So doing the things that God called them to do as far as offerings and sacrifices and all that, they're just not, um, you know, uh, they're just not doing it. And really, they're not really in the the, the center of God's will because God had called them and given them the opportunity to go back to the land where most of them didn't take that uh, responsibility. They kind of shunned it. They didn't want to really return to Israel uh, and to be involved in the temple worship and those things of God. And, and some of them probably had legitimate reasons of, this or that, they couldn't make the journey or so forth, but for the most part, most people shunned going back, and so therefore, you know, why would the law or why would God's, um, you know, way of worshiping Him be important to them? It, It just seemingly wasn't. The other interesting fact was that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book. I mean, uh, you just don't see it. You don't see the Lord referred to, God's not mentioned, it's just not named at all, which is seemingly very surprising for a book in the Bible. But uh, I think one of the things that the Lord wants us to see through that is that, yes, though, he's not being named, and the people pretty much are shunning, you know, going back to the land and doing what the law said, God's hand is, is, is there. He is working, and it's not missing. Um, you know, he's standing, that might, people might say, in the shadows of things, ruling and overruling and making things happen and things change and, and moving in the lives uh, of his people, even though their hearts aren't really in tune with his for the most part. Now you know I, you, that just kind of a, a general statement because we'll we'll talk about Mordecai who seems like a, a godly man and I think he is certainly but but again uh, you know he's just not missing but he's involved and I think the book of Esther was written to encourage the rest of the Jewish exiles reminding them of the faithfulness of God. And he would keep his promises to the nation, even though they were, for the most part, those that stayed back, you know, in what now is the Persian Empire left over from the Babylonian Empire, were really kind of unfaithful to go back and do the things that, you know, he had called them and given them the opportunity to do, which is to Jerusalem and to Israel and rebuild and go back to their family lands. And so A couple interesting things there as we go through here, but again, we'll see God's hand being faithful and moving even through the unfaithful. And you'll see his fingerprints all over and through the story here of the book of Esther. So now we kind of come in verse one to Xerxes already on the throne. So we don't get how he ascended and his dad, or, you know, we talked about Darius and Previous books, we'll talk about them again in the Prophets, but Xerxes is already ruling on the throne, uh, you know, uh, like the chart shows up there. So verse 1, why don't you put them upstairs for now? Don't you? They're going to do that. So verse 1 says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Asheraheus, and this was the Asheraheus who reigned over 127 provinces from India. To Ethiopia. So it just tells us, you know, uh, you know, during his days, the size of <laughs> the Persian Empire. And I'll show you some maps here in a little bit to give you some sense of that. So we get a you know which Azeris this is, which ruler this is, and verse 2 says In those days when King Azeriaus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. That the third year, uh, in, I'm sorry. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces, being before him, when he showed uh, the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his most excellent of his, I'm sorry, excellent majesty, for many days, one hundred and eighty. Days in all, so again, you know, Asherarius again, another name for king in, for for Persians, and uh, you know he has this vast empire that you know he inherited or was passed along through him from from Darius uh, the first. Now I just I'll put a map up here so you can kind of see you know gives you some sense of the Persian Empire, and so uh, you know you can see the color. Uh, not sure exactly what color that is, kind of the lighter color there, uh, you know, from India all the way over into just, you know, the doorstep of Greece and then all the way down into Egypt and of course, you know, that's the Arabian Desert so nobody claims that except for today because all the oils are there. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can see from what's now Russia, you know, to Greece, you know, in Europe there to You know, the North Africa, we'd say today, was part of the Persian Empire. And here's another map that gives you another, a little bit more of a, you know, closer look at it. Gives you a little bit more cities here. And so you get the idea of and the size of the Persian uh, Empire here. And the last one here, uh, again, just kind of tells us... um, you know some of the names of some of the ancient cities and areas over there, so you have some sense of what it looked like. But um, we see here that that Xerxes now is having this party, really, um, for uh, everybody who was anybody in the Persian kingdom uh, is here in the um, is here in the capital of Susa, and I'll show you the map of that a little bit more where that is and. In, in Persia, but again, he is uh, planning to invade Greece. Now, this is well talked about in history. This great battle where Persia and Greece meet head on, and of course, most of us know our history that eventually Greece will rise up with a guy named Alexander, and he will take over all this area from the Persians. But the the first push of going in to fight Greek is Greece is going to take place in about about two years from this time here that we're reading here. And uh, so what Xerxes does is have this six-month-long party. Now, uh, what he's really trying to do is uh, is rally all his leaders for the coming uh, invasion of Greece, and so he has this kind of over-the-top party and I don't know I don't know if anybody necessarily stayed there for 6 months I imagine some of them had to make some pretty long journeys and so you know they would come in there for a period of time and some of them probably you know stayed for longer period of times than others. But basically, he's trying to do is have this great party, this great celebration. It's very over-the-top opulent, and everything is available there. And, and he's trying to pump up all those leaders and all the leaders of the troops that were going to come together to, to have this campaign to take over Greece and expand the, the kingdom into Europe more. And so, you know, he's doing that. And I think the other thing that I kind of, at least in my mind, how I see it, Is you know he's having this party and he's have these as we'll see these you know beautiful golden goblets and food all kinds of food that you want and all kinds of drinks that you want and beautiful you know tapestries and flags and pageantry and all this kind of stuff and you know to me it, it he kind of is saying to the people look this is the Persian Empire and look at the wealth and look at the people here and look at the power and we have so much you know, riches and gold and silver, but we can have so much more. (laughs) We could take over Greece. We can continue to expand and even get stronger and bigger and have more. And I think that's kind of the picture he's painting uh, to all these people that are under his realm and to rally them up uh, to get pumped up for this Greek invasion that he has planned. And, uh, we have a lot, but man, we can get so much more appealing to the natural side of, of man, you know, the more power, more things, more goods, more everything, you know. And uh, look at it's out there for the taking. And that's what he's doing, you know, in these six months Then verse 5 says, When these days were completed, so after about six months of that, or six months of that, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. And notice, you know, he tells us a little bit about the decor of that party. Verse 6 says, There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory for the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So now Artaxerxes, or I'm sorry, Xerxes breaks out with this second party for a week long in the capital city. Now, you know, I think the reason we have so much detail in the second party and not so much in the first was probably Mordecai, who probably recorded all these events here. We know he was a scribe, probably was invited because everybody in the capital was invited to this, you know, from the least to the greatest. And so, you know, the first one, uh, I imagine uh, he wasn't invited to it. And so, you know, he didn't know much detail about that. That was made for the people outside the, the capital city and, you know, as we talked about there. And and so we can see just the opulence of what was going on uh, just for that week-long one. So we can imagine it was at least equal to that, if not greater. And you can just see there was two cups weren't the same. And the idea is, well, that's, you know, for, for those of us that like to have sets of things and and, uh, you know, everybody have the same, you know, typically a lot of the traditional place settings in a house, you know, you have the same silverware, the same cups, and, you know, you get a serving set of 12 or whatever you do, how many people you expect over. But the idea behind this was that, you know, they, gold was so abundant, we, you know, we can make all kinds of shapes and sizes and all kinds of different looks uh, because we have so much gold, it was the idea of just showing how wealthy they were, and then, of course you know, making uh fine linen was very expensive to get, and they had uh sofas of gold and silver. <laughs> if you can make a a bench out of gold or silver, you know you have a lot of money, and those were sitting on on pavements of what of of you know of of stones and Um, that were very precious, you know, alabaster and turquoise and and marble. So, you know, this beautiful gold or silver bench and chairs were sitting on these beautiful stones that I'm sure were put very, you know, well done underneath those things, just as beautiful, and they were, you know, serving whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 8, it seems a little strange to me um, because the drinking wasn't compulsory. And it could very well be that, you know, when he got down to the people that he probably dealt with, you know, day in and day out for the most part, for whatever a ruler of that kind of power would deal day in and day out. But, you know, uh, it seems like, you know, hey, if they want to drink and have, be a part, great. If they don't, they don't have to be. Seemingly think, you know, telling us that, you know, the first group, they were compelled to be a part. You need to be a part of this. He was ensured that you had to be a part of this. He probably, you know, the, those in, that are living in the Capitol, he probably has their full support and didn't feel the need to to make that, you know, uh, pressure you know, for them to have to do that. They could kind of do whatever they want. And uh, again, it's probably because he was closer to those who live in the, cap, uh, the capital. Now, at this point, you might think, okay, we got to be done with parties, right? I mean, six months, a week, and now we're up, but we're not done. But as the infomercials say, but there's more. <laughs> Verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ajaharius. So not only that, now the queen invited all the women to have their own special party as well. And, uh, you you know, kind of the idea we're all in this together. It doesn't give us the details of that, probably, again, because Mordecai, who probably, as we'll see, probably wrote down all that happened here, obviously not going to the party of the ladies, so other than the fact that he noted that it was going on, but again, I can imagine it was very similar to what we were just reading about here, you know, that was going on, and maybe it was happening at the same time as these other parties, and it was a place for the the wives and the gals to go, Uh, and, uh, you know, it probably seems like it was happening at the same time. Again, you didn't uh, typically mix male and females at a party like we do now. The guys would get together, the, the gals would get together. Um, in fact, it's like that in Persia today for the most part. Um, and so culturally that's what they did. And it seems like that's what's going on. So just picture that you know, everybody was invited and everybody had a part and was a part of all this. So a lot of parties going on, a lot of things happening, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Okay, back to the story here in and, and, uh, verse 10. So we're kind of moving back to the king. And on the seventh day, so remember we talked about he had a local party for all the rulers and, and those that were in the capital city of uh, 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 Susa. or Shusa, It's spelled a couple of different ways in, in the Bible. But, you know, uh, they were all there. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded Muthaman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abitha, Abitha, Zethar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Azharas to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. So, okay, not surprising he's, you know, drunk, the king's drunk on the 7th day and, you know, uh, you know, he was he was drunk, that's what we would say today, high spirits, that's the idea here with wine. And and according to, you know, Jewish tradition, and again, I'll just leave that to you, it's not told in the Bible, but it you know, you could probably buy into that pretty easy, but you know probably these guys are getting together you know it's probably the last day and so they're kind of really tying it on because it's the last day and everybody would go home and things would kind of go back to normal so it's the last day of this week-long party and so they're probably just you know you know tying one on for the on the last day. And I imagine as these guys are sitting around talking, and I imagine the subject rolling around. They're, they're drinking a lot, rolled around to, to women, and they probably started talking about the beautiful gals, and this is a beautiful girl, and this is a beautiful girl, and this is a beautiful girl, and, and again, you know, who's the most beautiful woman? And I think, you know, Asha Harris or Xerxes decided to settle the issue by putting his wife, the queen, on display. Ah oh, yeah, you know, and again, I I I but I, you know, I I can see how that could possibly happen, right? Ah, oh, you got to talk about her and her and her and I, but let me, you know, like maybe some guys talking about, you know, some gals that are making this swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated or this or that or whatever, you know, oh no, she's the best looking she. You can imagine and of course, with alcohol fueling that, you know, he's like, I'll show you the most beautiful woman in the land. And he tells these eunuchs, you know, that were, you know, attending him and probably were over the, the harem of, of women that he had. And again, you know, the reason they're eunuchs is they wouldn't have, the king wouldn't have to worry about them messing around with any of the women. They just, they you know, they're, they're generally castrated at a very young age and they just don't mature uh, Sexually at all, and so it it kind of cuts the testosterone, and that's it, and so it's not an issue, and so that was very common uh, for many, many, many thousands of years, Uh, and I imagine in some place, in some place today, it's probably still going on. But um, so he asked them, "Let's bring the queen in here." You know, you can imagine imagine him slurring the word, "Bring the queen in," I'll show you the most beautiful women, and. The woman in the land here, and and she was, as it says, quite beautiful to behold, but you notice that he says, bring her, you know, Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown, verse 11 tells us. And, and, you know, the way I read this is he is saying, I want her to wear her royal crown. Only her royal crown. Uh, you, You know, he's basically, you know... Uh, saying, I, everybody can see everything about this gal, and she's just going to be wearing her crown, only her crown. Now, there's going to be problems, as we'll read here in a little bit, but again, one of the great reasons is that's because alcohol is involved. And you know, as one person wisely put it, when wine enters, wisdom exits. And that's so true. I, I mean, just think of all the times and in, in maybe in your life or in lives of people that you've known or lived with or grew up around or spent time with when alcohol was involved, something bad always happened. You, you know, some people are prone to getting in fights. Every time they, have, they reach a certain level of alcohol, you know, there's fights every time they have so much alcohol men and women you know that's when all their inhibitions come off and they they go home with somebody else and you know they have you know we what we term one night stands it's because alcohol's involved you know alcohol all sorts of things happen when alcohol's involved and you um you know you lose your the sense of all you know of driving good and uh Inhibitions of things that you know you weren't normally wouldn't do or say or be like when alcohol's involved. You know, I was just talking to somebody at a business where I was, and he was talking about how he had a wreck on his. My notice, he was limping a little bit, and I said, "Well, you know, what's going on? How come you're limping?" And I've known him for a while, and oh, I had an accident on my motorcycle. He said, "Yeah, I broke two ribs and." Uh, I forgot a couple of things, you know, I had some road rash and this and that and I said, man I was, He goes, yeah, I was on the back road and he told me where and, and I said, man, was it hard to get the uh, You know the ambulance in there or the paramedics, you know, did did you go off? Oh, no I didn't go to the hospital till the next day and I go with broken ribs and all this scratches and cuts and everything. Well, I've been drinking and they wanna go in and deal with the police, you know, drinking and crashing, even though nobody was hurt, obviously, other than him, you know. And I was thinking, boy, all that pain was involved because alcohol well happened because alcohol was involved. And you know, you just go a little too fast around the corner, you think you can you can make the turn and uh, you know, you wind up like that. And of course there's that's the most mild story probably and we know some of the horrific stories and so you know that's kind of what's going on. It's just always important to point these things out when we read them how you know how how that causes so much problem in in our country today and I don't think there's anybody any one of us uh, you know listening to this that doesn't know how alcohol caused problems You know, either with them or with somebody they know. I mean, that touches everybody. It really does. And uh, nothing new under the sun. It's happening back then. It's happening today. And uh, nothing good comes of it. And so, you know, bring her in, I'll put an end to this argument. Just have her wear her crown. Everybody will see. So the eunuchs do their job. They go to collector, verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, you can picture this. You know, he's been talking it up and they've been, oh yeah, sure, no, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, I'll just... Put an end to this conversation, we'll bring her down and you'll see firsthand what she looks like. And, you know, she obviously knows what's probably going on and doesn't want to appear the way, you know, the king wants her to appear in front of everybody. And she says, no, I'm not gonna go. She's not gonna go and she's, I'm not going for that. And she refuses to come. Now, I think we can understand why she had that attitude but again, this guy is the ruler of pretty much the known area of the world, uh, you know, the, the most powerful man alive at that time. Uh, I, I think arguably, it would be very safe to say, he was the most powerful man uh, alive at that time. And not something good to do with a guy now that just stakes his, you know, because he's, Got loose lips with the alcohol, and he's put his, you know, money where his mouth is, so to speak, and bring her out, and I'll put it into this, and then all of a sudden she's no, I'm not going to come. I mean, it man hits you right in the pride. Uh, Who does she think she is, and how could she not do this, and? Uh, you know, how, uh, how and uh, you know, you can imagine how furious he really was. You know, it just really hit him, and he's the king, and she's going to say no, and I'm the guy that's in charge of everybody, and you can imagine how that went over, like a lead balloon. Well, let's see what happens because of that. Verse uh, 13 says, um, And the king said to the wise men who understand the times... For this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being uh, Karshina, uh, Shethar, uh, Admatha, uh, Tarshish, Me- uh, Miras, uh, Marasena, and Menakan. I kind of butchered all their names, but to get the idea. The seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence who ranked highest in the kingdom. So again, you know, he goes to these guys. These guys are the top advisors who he relies on. And he goes to them and says, verse 15, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Asheraheus brought to her by the eunuchs. So I imagine, you know, uh, I don't know how that whole day ended, the seventh day, you know, maybe the king kind of stormed out at the end of, you know, that whole thing when she didn't show up and that's it, the party's over maybe, I don't know what had happened, but I'm sure, you know, that was the end of that and it was the seventh day anyway. And uh, and so, you know, maybe the next day or something when he's coming around, you know, he okay get everybody together what are we going to do about this because it was an embarrassment to me as the king and it really just put me in this horrible horrible light we would call that a a royal embarrassment pun intended (laughs) it was a royal embarrassment and something had to be done to save face, right? You can imagine that. So he asked the wise men, what should we do? How to restore my pride and my power and all this, you know, that, that she doesn't get away with this and people will respect and all that kind of stuff. And, and and again, you know, I just, I think it's important to point out when we're here, you know, that can happen to us as well. When our, our pride gets injured, uh, you know, there are always you know those that are willing to give us, you know, tell us things and encourage us, and, and to do things, you know, and particularly ungodly things to get our pride back or or to get even, we would say. And we need to be careful of that because we can be pretty vulnerable. And you know, people though they might mean good, and but the bottom line is, you know, there could be people that are you know, that know you and that are so to speak, on your side and, you know, saw all that and they want to, you know, rectify the situation and change things around and, you know, you need to take care of that. Oh, this is what you should do. and This is what you should do. You know, it happens all the time. You know, a couple gets in an argument and she goes, talks to her friends. He talks to his friends. Oh, you should, you know, do this. and And typically where it always goes, well, in a general sense, right? Oh, you need to divorce him. I'll give you a name of a good lawyer and this person helped me here and this is what you need to do and, you know, uh, that's typically, you know, the the advice that comes in when something like this happens, you know, in a marriage and not in these terms, obviously. We're not, you know, ruling empires and it's not uh, 483 BC, but You know, you get the idea. Something happens that way and they embarrass one another or they, you know, do something and then pride starts working and then they tell their friends and then, you know, they do the same kind of thing. You know, how to get back or to get even or to, you know, retaliate in some way to get your pride back. And we should be careful about that. You know, um... You know, the Lord has a way of allowing us to be humble and moving us towards humility. And uh, we always need to be as believers. It just won't happen in the world. They they just, it's almost impossible for a non-believer to really sit humbly beside when their ego is really damaged. It's just, uh, you know, particularly this is true with mostly men, but of course, you know, women can experience the same thing it's not quite the same way but it they their prides hurt in a lot of ways and it just process a little different but but again you know um uh, you, you know the lord has this way of of you know he humbles the pride you know there, there's just we get into proverbs here in the next little while next few months we'll you know, we'll we'll see how much there is talking about pride. You know, Psalms and Proverbs, but particularly Proverbs. And so, to receive a, a humbling correction from the Lord is difficult. But when it does happen, we need to okay, Lord, you want to reset this? I'm going to allow you to do that. I, I know you're working through the situation, even though we might in our own mind justify the reasons why we're not going to be humble, why we're not going to let them get away with it, why we're going to hold that against them and you know retaliate in some way. It might be years later, but we're holding on to it. And, and if we hold on to it, we're going to retaliate at some point. If you hold on to something, it's at some point it's going to come out and you're going to retaliate in some way, whether it's the words or in some other deeds or some other way of doing things. And so... You know, but but there's always people out there when we share these things that happen to us and that hurt us, that they're willing to give their advice and, you know, we need to be careful because if they don't know the Lord, it can be very ungodly advice. In fact, it absolutely will be if they don't know the Lord. And even people that know us and love us, you know, could want something to happen. Um, and so they will, you know, tell us things that just really aren't, the Lord's will, and we just need to be careful in those positions where we can be very vulnerable because of all that, because our pride is hurt, and our emotions are worked up, and all those kind of things. Now, but I also think it's important to point out here, because we are talking about a husband and a wife, and the wife not... Uh, now, obviously, if my, you know assessment is correct how he wanted to present her, um, which seems to be true. But, you know, that aside, you know, we, we the Bible does talk about, you know, husband and wives and their special responsibility between each other. And I'll, I'll put it up here so we know, and it, it does talk about, oops, there's the capital. I didn't throw that slide up there, sorry, but here it is. It's in Ephesians uh, you know, 5.22, and it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so we, we, you know, we, we are talking about the situation and not the circumstances, but you know, it is very clearly taught you know, in Scripture, and not just here, but in a number of places. And the Bible says the wives do have this special responsibility to submit to their husbands. Yet it doesn't mean a wife must obey her husband if he commands her to sin. We need to remember that. Obviously, he's asking her to do something or wants her to do something that is sinful. Then obviously, that all bets are off at that point. You know, uh, and we have to think every request. And you know, in this case, they use the word command. Obviously, here, but every request and every desire of a husband, you know, a Christian couple to his wife. For the wife, it's always got to be filtered through the higher obligation to obey God before man. So, you know, there's always got to run through that filter. You know, I need to obey God before man. But that's only in the equation where it's just sinful and wrong. And it's clear. It's not, well, my opinion is different. It's not, you know, I feel different about that. I think we should approach it this way, or or do it this way, and therefore, because I feel we should do it this way, uh, and I feel this is the right way, I I can just disregard what he has to say, um, and uh, because I, you know, I feel my way of doing it is is right, and therefore, you know, his way is wrong, and so in my own mind, you know, I don't have to, you know, I can discount how he feels or how he thinks. I'll just say this, you know, because obviously it can seem very self-serving me saying something like this. But I try to speak, obviously, the truth of what Scripture says, and it's not about my opinion in any any stretch of of the matter. But um, you know, there is that um, that tendency to want to do that, and and you know, a person, uh, a wife is going to have to answer to the Lord for those kind of things. You know, when they put how they felt and then, but they moved into the guise of, I, you know, I'm more spiritual or my way is more spiritual or my thing of doing it or how I'm going to handle it or whatever it might be, you know, is, is you know, I'm right. So therefore it's godly and his way isn't as godly. And so I can choose my way. Uh, it better be clear. Now, anything obviously that contradicts scripture, clear cut. But when you move outside of that, you know, you better prayerfully approach that. Because if not, you're you're going against what God's taught, clearly. And so, well, I, I will just, you know, make application for us today in, in our husband and wife relationships here. Okay, so he goes to these guys and says, what should we do? You know, how can we handle this? How can we save face and take care of this and all this kind of stuff? And so, verse 16 says, men, you can... Uh, answered before the king, he was one of those guys that listed there was his advisors and the princes. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king but also all the princes and all the people who are uh, and all the people who are in all the provinces of King aharius for the queen's behavior will become known to all women so they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahirius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, thus there must be excessive contempt, I'm sorry, thus there will be excessive contempt, contempt and wrath. Verse 19, If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Queen Vashti shall come no more before King Ajaherius and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So these guys get together and uh, Menukin, one of his advisors, you know, (laughs) kind of comically in my opinion, you know, her actions are going to cause big problems all over the kingdom, all over the empire here. You know, there's going to be rebellion of wives everywhere when they hear what's going on here. And, you know, uh, certainly he's blowing it up and making it a big deal, but... But, you know, and on one side you see his point, because if they're gonna, if the highest power in the land is happening there, then how much easier it is for somebody else uh, to, do, to do it. And it goes, you know, uh, it's amazing how bad things spread so quickly. But I think he's hamming it up quite a bit, certainly there. You know, it's going to be rebellion everywhere. You know, seriously doubt that was going to happen. But he's making a big point, and it's probably to help, soothe the ego of Art Zertzies. Oh, yeah, what this is going to, you know, we're going to restore your pride because we got to take care of this because it's going to affect everybody. And I'm sure it was kind of massaging his ego and his pride so it would be, you know, dialed down a little bit. Um, but, you know... It, Again, I, I want to bring it back to what the Bible teaches today, um, you know, and what, what does the Bible talk about this, you know? Because in, in some sense, uh, certainly there is some truth to this. Now, in this situation, in this case, uh, I'm not defending that in any way on either side, but there is a principle, and since we are talking about wives and husbands, you know, we should know what, because this, you know, again, his, the books of history just report what happened. Um, there's times where they comment on it and we're told, you know, this is a bad example or this is a good example or this was right or this is wrong. But there's a number of times where it's just told what happened. It's just recorded. And we have to look at other scriptures, obviously, to to see what they have to say and what they make clear distinctions in there. And some of them are, are very clear, such as this. And, and the Bible does, again, talk about this. And I'll, I'll put that, you know, verse up there, Ephesians 3.33. You know, it does talk about in that same section, uh, 533, I'm sorry, and, and the wife must respect her husband. It, it's pretty clear. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. It's very clear in the Scripture. You know, there is a place and its importance in in the church and in God's way of, of, uh, of dealing with marriages, and the wives particularly. Now, again, there's much said about the husbands but since you know the 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 light is shed a little bit here on the wives so we're going to talk about that but there's plenty of responsibility for the husbands but one of the important things is that you know there is respect for the husband that's a very important biblical principle and um you know i I always thought one of the greatest you know teachings uh it, it wasn't even clear in my mind how that really affects me personally like how I understand it says that, but we were going through that love and marriage um, couples conference some years ago at the church here. And, you know, the, uh, you know, as they were presenting this, this topic of respect, you know, really crystallized a lot of things in my own mind, uh, which, you know, makes sense. And I didn't really put it together until I really heard all that. Uh, But it is a very important part. It really is. And, um, And and, and so Ephesians, you know, talks about that. And I'll I'll put this quote up here because I think it was well said, you know. Um, It says the, uh, the goal presented here was admirable and speaks to the need within every man to sense respect and honor from his wife. A wife's respect is the most precious gift she can give her husband. And I like that because I believe that to be very true. Um, you know, I, I don't know, gals, you're listening to this and hearing this, what you think is one of the most precious gifts you could ever give your husband. Uh, but I'm here with, you know, with this quote here. Um, uh, I, I believe that is the most precious gift. You know, some of us might think it's this or that or whatever, but uh, it, it's certainly, you know, up there at the very top, if not the top of the list here. And so I, I pass that along, uh, so because we are dealing with it here in where we are in um, Esther. But back now to our, our, our story here, as we you know, finish up here. You know, so you know, here's the solution these guy, this guy presents. Tell the whole empires that wives can't do such a thing. You know, make an example out of this, and basically how they're going to do that is show Vashti the door, right? She's gone. Uh, We would call it today, you know, probably a divorce, but back in those days, it was probably much more than that. Uh, uh, You know, I I can only imagine that she paid a pretty dear price for doing such a thing in public as she did it. Um, But for our point here, you know, we need to set an example, and the solution here is you know, for lack of a better description, we would say today, you know, you need to divorce her and get rid of it and get a new wife and get a new queen to replace her and somebody better. Okay, that that was his solution. And that way, everybody will see that if you do this, you know, then you can expect the same results. And again, um, uh, you know, that's what he's pretty much saying here. Now, remember when I said at the beginning that, the you know, the name of God, you know, The Lord, the Father, any of that is just without reference in here. And again, you know, as we talked about why, but you know, here's one of these places where we can see the Father's fingerprints throughout these events. He's moving and working in His people, and as most of you that know the rest of the story, you know, Esther is going to be the next queen, and. We most of us know, you know, how that all works out, but if you don't, she is going to be the next queen. And so, the Lord is allowing all this to happen and going on because He is ruling and overruling everything that's going on at that time and all this to move things into place so that His will can be accomplished and His people, uh, the Jews, can be blessed, the nation, even in their, you know, part of not being obedient and rebellious to a certain degree because they're not going back to the land and all that's entailed and all that, you know, he is still working. And, and notice that he's it, it's, it's going to always seem as the result of natural circumstances. Uh, and I, and I want to remind us of that because, you know, the Lord works so much in our lives and we just see it as, oh, that's just the way it happened. Or that's the way it worked out. Or this didn't happen. Boy, that was a good thing. Or this did happen and that was a good thing. That's because this guy did this and this happened over here. And, and we just look at it as that's just kind of the natural circumstances. But it benefited me. It helped me. It saved me. It did this. It, and, and you know, we always need to take a step back and realize, as we see here, that God is working in the supernatural. And He does so much of the time like to work through what most people would say you know, natural uh, circumstances, or, you know, oh, that's just the way things worked out, we would say. But truly just know it's the Lord moving and working in the lives of His people. That's what He does for us. And that's why it's good, I think, you know, every once in a while, and probably more than every once in a while, to just to thank the Lord and, and you know, uh, celebrate the Lord and, and talk to Him about all those things He's done that we're just not even aware of. You know, thank you, Father, for all the things that I'm just not even aware of. Even when I had a bad heart or I had a wrong attitude or my motives were mixed up and this and that, you know, you continue to work for my good. Even, uh, you're faithful even if I'm unfaithful. And uh, here's one of those circumstances we'll see as he moves all this in place. Uh, let's not forget that. It's his unseen hands behind all this, moving things to work. For the benefit of his people. Well, let's finish up this last section here, verse twenty. When the king's decree, which he made, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small, and the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Menachem. Then, verse 22 says, He sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. Well, you know, there you go. <laughs> again, you know, uh, again, it sounds like they're making this insult so much bigger than it really was. But again, they did had to soothe the ego of a you know basically this world ruling emperor who I'm sure had a huge ego, and um, but you know again you can just see what alcohol led to all this, and you know you can see when we retaliate, uh, I think that's important to see here too that you know um, you know notice how it affects people around you now obviously. You know, he's a world ruling emperor for the most part, Um, you you know, but it does affect us when we, you know, have to retaliate or feel like we need to get our word in or we need to respond or we need to make it, you know, correct this or show that they're wrong or they did us wrong or they did this, you know, uh, again, it affects just more than that little situation. It, it, It impacts a lot of people. And it's kind of the attitude, oh, yeah, if you do this, oh, yeah, I'll do that kind of a thing. Um, You know, maybe you've wondered in the past why, you know, God says in the Old Testament, when there's uh, punishment to be handed out, you know, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. uh, You know, you do, um, uh, you know, what's been done. But you don't really go any, people think, well, that's kind of cruel, but you don't go any further because retaliation and getting back, typically is if you knock my tooth out, I'm gonna knock out three teeth. I'm gonna break your nose too. And if you knock out three teeth and break my nose, man, I'm gonna break your arm and your leg and break that, right? You know, that's how things work. You know, you do this to me, I'm gonna do that to you. Oh yeah, you do that to me, I'm gonna do this. You know, it just goes up the ladder and the Lord says, listen, you know, that, it, what's done is it's equally measured out. What was done, it gets paid back to them, but no more. And really that was caused to limit it because he knows how our tendency is in retaliation, retribution, to, to up one and to make it worse. Oh yeah, you do it to me? I'll show you what I'm going to do to you. And that's the way it goes. And, and that's why it's always important as believers that we allow the Lord to be our defense. You know, in the old covenant, there was place for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because it was a civil law. And it was for the old covenant of the nation. You know, what we're encouraged, uh, you know, of Israel, un, uh, what we're encouraged today as people of many nations is to allow the Lord to defend us. Lord, you saw what's going on. You see how they wronged me and what they did wrong. Well, rather than me trying to retaliate and get back at them or make things this way or demand my way or my, demand my word or this or that, I'm going to allow you to work things out. I'm going to trust you to be my defense That's why Jesus says, you know, to turn your cheek when somebody strikes you. And the the idea is simply that. Not that you are a doormat for somebody, but, you know, in your heart, when somebody does you wrong, you allow the Lord to defend you and to make it right. Because ultimately, He knows what's going on, and ultimately, He will do and bring justice far better and more and perfect in every way than we ever could. And so we're, we're told to leave it in his hands. And when we don't, things like this happen, or it just gets out of control and it blows up through a whole area and pride has to be satisfied and we have to up it one, you know, uh, all over the place. And so we see how that runs when we retaliate and try to win back our pride. And uh, it doesn't go well. Well, we'll call it an evening there. We'll pick it up in chapter two next time and uh, as we go through the book of Esther. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for, again, the lessons that are uh, laid out before us here in the book of Esther. Just pray that we would learn from these things. and, And Lord, we just thank you that you're so faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And we see that happening here in the lives of the Jews, Lord, but we also know it's true in our lives today we do thank you for your faithfulness and for your love. Even when we we do wrong and let you down or head off in the wrong direction for some reason or another, Lord, you're you're faithful. And we do want to thank you for all the many thousands of times you've protected us and watched over and make things work out for what's the best and for your will working in and through our lives when we didn't even notice. Maybe we even took credit for it. Or maybe we just said, wow, that was lucky, or wow, that was just close call, you know, and uh, we attributed it to all sorts of things when really it was your hand and your love and your working and your way in our lives, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to that. Help us to remember to always be thankful and grateful to you for all those things that you do unseen in our lives, Lord. It just shows how much you love us, Lord. And we're thankful for that. Bless these things to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. And have a great evening.